The year is 1978. The film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Directed by Philip Kaufman from a screenplay by W.D. Richter, the film stars Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, and Leonard Nimoy. The story, Matthew Bennell, played by Donald Sutherland, assumes that when a friend, played by Brooke Adams, complains of her husband's strange mood, it's a marital issue. However, he begins to worry as more people report similar observations. His concern is confirmed when writer Jack Belichick, played by Jeff Goldblum, and his wife, played by Veronica Cartwright, discover mutated corpses. Besieged by an invisible enemy, Bennell must work quickly before the city is consumed. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your host Antonio of the Cult-Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. Nineteen seventy-eight, man. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the remake, directed by Philip Kaufman. Now, this is one that I actually just recently revisited when I put it on the list for us to go through. And the reason why I picked it was a, I wanted the opportunity to revisit it because I bought the four K. But b, I always felt that their synopsis and their review in this episode of Sneak Previews, which was their show before at the movies was like a little lackluster. So I'm like, okay, well, if we do this episode, we can dig into the other reviews that they had done for their respective papers, anything like that. But what we discovered in that was there's very little, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we look at even Ebert's version, because Siskel ran that review. He, he did a majority of the work here um, with Ebert's tidbit on it. But we don't get a full picture of what the deep dive is on what they actually thought about the movie. And that's where the most frustrating thing is, because I really wanted to deep dive into these two thoughts. But there's nothing out there that actually defines this movie by these two uh, men. It's such an interesting thing. Like, we dug through the bowels of the Internet and we both have our resources. You have a lot of the print books. I was digging through the internet archive. We were looking through Reddit. I was looking through all the different forums that are dedicated to Siskel and Ebert, and nothing I could find about any of their personal thoughts on this film. But you said that you found something in Reddit that might shed a little bit of light onto why, and what was that? Yeah, and again, nothing's confirmed. It's Reddit, right? It is Reddit. But <laughs> rumor is newspapers back in the 70s, even 80s, and probably through the 90s, uh, they have to pick and choose what articles to run. And it could be numerous things. It could be it wasn't really good enough. It wasn't going to get enough readers compared to the other movies that were in print that day. They, they might have had to make a couple cuts. And that's the only thing that really makes sense to me with when it comes to this movie. But then it's just a big question mark, because even in their review, they said that this was a lackluster holiday season with not a lot out there. And this one was a, a positive review for them. It was a positive review. And it was, again, just like the last episode, which was the first episode that we did. 
there are very interesting films in the lineup that they had to do this review in, and we'll cover that later. So what we're going to do, listeners, is we are going to speculate what Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert's actual thoughts of this movie are based on what they say in their actual review and based on what we kind of know about them from their previous reviews in both sneak previews at the movies and in their writings. But that's the last half of the podcast. The first half is Justin and I discussing our thoughts on the film. Now, like always, we do not critique the movie with a rating. We're going to critique the reviews of Siskel and Ebert. I taking Siskel's role, Justin taking Ebert's role. And we are going to decide how well we think their review is. But in this case, it's going to be a speculated review. But before that, let's get to the movie. How familiar were you with this film when I put it on the list? I've seen this movie numerous times. Every version of Body Snatchers I absolutely love. Any film that comes from a basis point of a creature feature from the 50s, I really appreciate no matter how bad or mediocre or even brilliant it is. Um, I love to compare it from the old to the kind of the new. But in this case, this one wasn't too far off from the original one, if you really look at it. Um, it's kind of in comparison to what we see remakes now of the timing between each movie. Right. Um, so, and I was a huge fan of Donald Sutherland, uh, especially in my younger teens to uh, young adult um, era. So I, Body Statures is one of my go-to Donald Sutherland movies. I agree. I, I grew up with this movie. This movie was on all the time on cable. Uh, my parents liked this movie. I'm pretty sure we rented it at some point with them growing up. And I say I was raised with Donald Sutherland always on the TV from Robert Altman's MASH. Uh, I think one of the ones that really kind of made me feel almost like a surrogate son to him is Neil Simon's Max Dugan Returns, where he plays the cop. I watched that movie to death because I identified with Matthew Broderick and here he is in the cop role, kind of like surrogate father role. And that's just a great kind of ladder work from Neil Simon. So I've always been very, very in tune with Neil Simon. I'm sorry. I've very, always been very in tune with Donald Sutherland films. And the one thing I have to say about this particular film is it really fits in with that whole conspiracy vibe of the 70s. Films like Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor. This is kind of going towards the end of it, and it takes that good old-fashioned 70s paranoia and mixes it with the 1950s sci-fi classic and kind of blends them together. Now, I got to tell you, I, I like Philip Kaufman as a director, but I'm not the biggest fan of Philip Kaufman films. And I don't think that's necessarily his fault because like a lot of directors of the 70s and the 80s, especially new Hollywood guys like this, it's very evident in his catalog that he's doing one for the studio and then one for himself and then one for the studio and then one for himself. So obviously this was a studio film and he does a great job with it. But of course, I'm going to put in my two cents later. What about your Philip Kaufman appreciation or lack thereof? How does that go? So, and I think Ebert said it best, is that at that time he was a brilliant young director. But here's Kaufman I'm not a huge fan of, personally, because all of his films seem very linear. 
They're mm -hmm. very straightforward. He uses the same skill and there's very little risks to it. Um, we can see a Kaufman shot and recycled in a lot of his shots. But what I will give him credit for, even though they're the same shots, is he knows how to tell a story, but it's safe, but he knows how to tell a story. Right. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is probably his best example of utilizing all the technical aspects into getting an audience reaction. And we see that from the music to the, uh, the cinematography, from even his angles. When we take Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this is the movie that stands above the rest because I think when he is a young director, that's when he actually took risk. He shot the movie he wanted to do. And to your point, this doesn't feel, to me, this doesn't feel like a studio movie because this one has a lot of elements from Kaufman that really differ from his other movies to, that I see on screen. I agree with you. And, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that, okay, well, this is a guy that really just got his career started because he was pals with George Lucas, right? I mean, they essentially came up together. He literally wrote the story for Raiders of the Lost Ark. So without Philip Kaufman, there'd be no Indiana Jones. I don't think a lot of people know that. His stories are, are good. His stories are entertaining. But I always felt that as a director, especially when he was doing the films that weren't studio movies, he tried to be too much of an auteur, and he tried to be too much of a provocateur in terms of taste. So if you think about his studio films... He's got this. He's got the right stuff, which is like the perfect studio film for when it came out. He's got Rising Sun. But in between that, he's got Harry and Henry and June. He's got the unbearable lightness of being of being two NC-17 rated films in the 80s. In fact, I believe that unbearable lightness of being is the reason why there is an NC-17 rating. So there is that little bit of him where it's like okay, he wants to be a provocateur but at the same time, I don't think he's just that good at it. Yeah, well, you even look at the crescendo of Quills. That was just a bizarre bonkers movie right. um, where he took a there's a lot of risk to that movie. But that was kind of almost to the end of his peak where it's just almost flatlined where that's where we see him, I think, go out of the studio and go with more. I don't want to even call him passion projects, right. but his create put his creative mind on on screen. Um, but I think you're 100 percent right. Um, there is a lot to his movies that you can really do tell that there is a lot of studio fluff in there. Um, but I think as his career got on and he went into Hollywood, that's where you see a lot of the studio constraint on him and he didn't take risks. So I'm going to like be the film nerd here for a second because of all of his films, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is my favorite. It's my favorite as a director. It's the favorite the way the structure and the plot works and just the casting and music decisions. Like everything about this works for me for the kind of film it is. Have you ever seen his very first feature film, Fearless Frank? No, I have not. So it was like his college film that he turned into a full feature production in like, I think 67 or 68. And it was one of John Voight's first films. It is absolutely bonkers. It's ridiculous. It's a superhero movie without any real superheroes. It's like a superhero movie on a budget, but it really tries to do the Richard Lester help hard days, night kind of comedy and slapstick. 
but it doesn't really work. It's a great midnight movie. I think it's a midnight movie that hasn't really been discovered yet. But I always think that if you look at a filmmaker's first project, you see the DNA that is going to live on through the rest of their films, the rest of their career. Even if they, I mean, grow and mature as filmmakers and make just the bangers pictures out, out there, you're always going to see a little bit of that DNA. And in Fearless Frank, it's nothing but fuckery. And that's one of the things that I actually have a problem with, with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, is that there is a lot of fuckery in terms of we're taking this conspiracy paranoia sci-fi thriller, but we're throwing some sight gags and references to older films, especially the original, that just kind of seem out of place. I'm just going to go out there and say it. Kevin McCarthy showing up and bouncing against the taxi cab saying, they're here, they're here already. Yeah, that's a great throwback for people that's seen the original. But for me, watching it again, I feel that it's forced and it kind of takes me out of the suspense that the film is supposed to be giving us because it's a suspenseful film. And that just kind of felt like a silly sight gag. And there's a few of those throughout the movie. So I'm not saying that they make the movie any less enjoyable. If I had to put my critic hat on, I feel that if you don't know the original and if you don't know the references they're trying to make, it probably won't bother you. But for guys like you and me and other guys that watch a lot of movies, it's distracting. And that's one of the few problems I have with this rewatch. Yeah. And to that scene and that point, uh, McCarthy does it great, though. Yeah, he is. Um, He's a great guy. I'm not saying it's him that's bad. (laughs) But we look at that scene and I would 100 percent agree. But what I did enjoy is that was a setup to a much bigger scene. So we take the bookstore, the the party. This is a scene that actually I notated because I actually love this scene because it symbolizes so much. Um, And without that McCarthy scene and given that, yeah, it does feel a little out of place or just kind of cliche to a point. But if we look at the bigger picture, that book scene we have, we have the chaos of uh, the phone call to the police that kind of does just gives us a little bit of mystery, but doesn't give too much away. Right. Then you have everything else going out in the background. There's a lot of question marks. And what I loved about this scene, if we look at different looks this these aren't the looks from the characters that we get throughout the movie it's very subtle it's seen through the actual view of a single opinion of the single character and it's not as serious we don't have the sharp music that we have per se um, but it's a setup of a bigger mystery to a scene that i really did appreciate the result of that scene but i would agree that it does seem a little kind of thrown in for the tone of it when it actually happens Right. Now, the casting of this, I find very uh, favorable to what the film is. Sutherland is just perfect for this paranoia uh, energy of the 70s. You know, he already had done uh, Don't Look Now, which he may as well be the same character. He's got the same mustache. He's got the same hairstyle. Uh, He kept that whole persona, I think, that last half of the 70s. That's what people expected Donald Sutherland to look like, which is interesting to me because... And don't look now, you know, even now when I go back and watch that movie, it's like, how does beautiful, gorgeous Julie Christie love this kind of Sasquatchian dude with the mustache and the funny hair? He almost looks like Beaker from the Muppets sometimes. And he and he carries that same vibe and energy into this one where now Brooke Adams, who's you know married to a dude 
but you can tell there's chemistry between the two of them right off the beginning. You know, from the very first scene that they're two introduced, like, oh, well, yeah, there's something going on between these two. Even if it hasn't been consummated, there is a chemistry. You know, there's more to that, which I can get to later, but I, I, I feel that that is like the perfect kind of character actor for this role of the 70s. And I think Brooke Adams is perfect for her role because she seems genuine. She seems like a person that would really be in this city doing this job. She's attractive, but she's not movie star attractive. And in interviews, that was her biggest concern. She's like, I'm not movie star quality leading lady material. And Philip Kaufman's like, well, that's not what I want. Like, I people aren't going to identify and connect with a supermodel looking woman when she's on the run from aliens from another planet. We need someone that they can identify with, that they recognize a little bit of themselves in. And so that's where I give him like a huge applause of like casting real people in this movie and not, you know, Warren Beatty's and not Julie Christie's, right? Yeah, and Brooke Adams is brilliant. And I 100% agree with this. Because we take the chemistry, and it's a nice contrast, even though I wasn't a big fan of, you know, Elizabeth Driscoll's boyfriend, husband, whatever it is. Um, that chemistry was kind of odd to me, um, where it was almost too obvious. And then we, the reaction that they're asking for us to relate to, we, I, don't, I didn't feel that piece of it. But when it comes to the normal actors, the girl next door type, that's what got me to relate to that character when she was showing distress she right. was showing threat because it's a relatable character to the viewer when she's stressed it's nothing like dramatically horrible it's her own inner demons it's her own inner fears of what she thinks is and what she thinks is happening and to a point where she doesn't even know if it's something mental or if it's something that's actually happening she just knows something's going on right. and that is a bigger fear to a character or to even to the audience than anything on screen, than aliens to the point. When we're left with our own fears and we're left with this character that we really do care about, um, it opens up the imagination to how we feel about what's going to happen. And Donald Sutherland is fantastic when it comes to supporting her because we have these two normal characters and Sutherland's not as abrupt as, or he's not, he's more subtle um, than uh, Driscoll is when it comes to the likability factor, because he is in a in a form a person of authority. So right. that takes away from the audience, but it's a good contrast be between the two. It's a great team up, and we get just uh, the perfect side characters to go with this. It's like the perfect side characters for a horror suspense film like this, and that is Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright, horror icons on their own that were soon to be. I mean, she was in The Birds when she was a kid, so she was already a horror icon. Jeff Goldblum's star was just rising, right? But, you know, we'd have The Fly in a few years. Uh, we'd have him in Buckaroo Banzai in the Jurassic Park movies. So he definitely brings that perfect vibe of, I'm going to say, enjoyable neurotic paranoia that he brings to pretty much all of the roles that he got famous for in the 80s. And then Veronica Cartwright, I have such respect for her as like the screen queen that never got the full recognition that she should have had, right? Like, I don't in my soul feel like anyone has 
a scream and a terror shriek as believable and resonating as Veronica Cartwright, yet you never see her talked about when we talk about scream queens, probably because she's never really the final girl, you know, and in this she kind of is, but kind of not, you know, in Alien, she is the one that actually brings the terror and the suspense, in my opinion, because Sigourney Weaver has to be the cool-headed one, right? And uh, Yafit Koto and Harry Dean Stanton, they are kind of just alien fodder, but they brought a lot of life to characters that were pretty much just there to be killed. It's Veronica Cartwright's role as Lambert in Alien. To me, that really makes that movie terrifying because she's the one that's truly bringing the fear, the terror, and the agony of death that you really don't get to see on screen because most of the other deaths are all done off of screen. And she brings that here. And it's a secondary character, but she makes it so memorable. Where in there's scenes in this, especially at the end, where it's like, okay, well, she just stole the show from almost everyone in in the cast on the credit list above her. Yeah, and there are points that I really wish she had more screen time because every time that she was on screen, it was 100% effective. Right. But I know that's just my greedy self wanting more of that, and that would have ruined the tone of the film and the effectiveness of what she was there to accomplish. But we talk about great team-ups because that with Jeff Goldblum, that is the perfect match when it comes to character writing, is to contrast and contradict. Yeah. And with Jeff Goldblum, to me... I. This one was fresh out of theater school performance for me, mm -hmm. but I think this set the tone when it comes to the genre of which he started to really, really make him take those steps to something great. And that's when you rewatch this movie, you can see those different aspects of what he's trying to do and what he's actually learning. And you see that resonate in his dedication to that role and that performance. And that's what makes it so great. There's a scene where he walks into the, the mud room where uh, the uh, like they have a yeah spa. the mudroom yeah <laughs> the spa thing yeah and he throws a book and at a time you can kind of see him corner eye the camera and I'm just like ah oh, Goldblum no so there are moments where he does shine his in his amateurish acting but it is still absolutely Goldblum brilliant I agree and now we have to talk about like the great white buffalo of this film and that's Leonard Nimoy I mean bringing in Leonard Nimoy into a film where like he wasn't doing a lot of films other than Star Trek at this time. Shatner was all over the fucking place. Shatner was in Roger Corman films and he was in a lot of the AIP stuff, obviously to feed his ego and to feed his bank account. But we really didn't get to see a lot of Nimoy. And the fact that Nimoy comes in here and is not using the Spock speak, is not using the Spock posture, it's very unnerving to see someone that we've resonated with a character archetype for so long play a different kind of role, you know, and the, what I love about this guy's character is that he is pseudoscience where Spock is all about science and logic. In fact, here we're seeing a guy who's really a snake oil salesman of psychology and I thought that was just so perfect in its casting and its performance because it's the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Like, this is a guy who's really just feeding people bullshit, but he looks the part. He's got the hair. He's got the camel skin jacket. He's got the cocktail parties. So 
it makes a lot of sense that people think that he's got the answers to something that there's absolutely no answer for until he's turned. And then he gets to use his influence to bring more people in and get turned. What a fantastic character, character arc, and usage of that actor's notoriety at the time. I, I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, Nimoy is a complete asshole in this movie. And what I loved about this is this one, his role is more terrifying than when we take authority with no mental state or no power to control themselves. Right. This is a character that is, in my opinion, the best character of the movie. You take a psychologist that you are absolutely right, a wolf in sheep's clothing, because he gaslights the crap out of these people, and he actually attacks the fears. This is more relevant in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even today, yeah. where we have this person that we entrust, and it actually goes against us. It actually takes our internal fears, and has it has us question ourselves on what's true and what's not. It's This character is absolutely brilliant he is the best one of the movie in my opinion agreed like this would be a dr phil or a dr oz in modern day parlances and he's essentially being a, a, a prophetic character of those type of things that we would see today here in 1978 and i give credit to that to the screenwriter man wd richter huge fan right wrote one of the greatest cult films of all time adventures of buckaroo Banzai. He also did a great film, uh, Late to Dinner, and one of my favorite holiday films, he wrote uh, Home for the Holidays with Jodie Foster. So this guy knows how to write a story, but more importantly, this guy knows how to write characters. Like, think about the characters in this. Think about the characters in Buckaroo Banzai, uh, the colorful characters in Home for the Holidays and other films like that. This film, to me, works because of the characters where it doesn't fall to the stereotypical people that you would see in sci-fi horror films you know the smart guy the pretty girl the the virgin the slut you know there, there isn't that this real people that he writes here but he doesn't make them boring and that's one of the things i think helps drive this so as a film as a sci-fi horror conspiracy film i think that it does a lot of things right i think the things that it does wrong are just Things that Philip Coffin might have thrown in there as like a gag or a goof. There's enough humor in the script that, in my opinion, it didn't need that. And it just barely, on my opinion and on my taste, barely crosses the line where the film loses its credibility as a serious sci-fi conspiracy film. But when you take the production value, when you take the amazing sound design by uh, Brett Burt, who did Star Wars and Wall-E. It just, it just works. And to kind of make this the, the cap on the conspiracy and paranoia cinema of the 70s before we just went into Jaws and blockbusters and sci-fi films and Star Wars, I think it really, really works. Yeah, and I'm kind of the opposite. I, I did enjoy kind of the second half of the movie, but where I felt the miss was the actual first half is the buildup because you have this cool concept, this great uh, story. And it feels like it was almost like a light switch that just says, okay, here we go. This is going to happen. And it starts with this beautiful opening credit scene um, with the cloudy creatures, whatever it mm -hmm. may be. And then um, it just feels segmented where 
they went from A, B, and C down to Earth and created these pods. What I really, what it really reminded me, reminded me of what it should have been was like Charlie Sheen's The Arrival, where you have all this buildup where you actually add a little bit of that mystery because this is a movie about fear. This is a movie about not having an individual voice and that being a fear itself. We we need to have a really good buildup to find out how we're how society is going to react to this except for just a group of characters what happened in between what's the time lapse i i really wanted us almost a science behind it i get that but i also think what hurts this film is the fact that it is a remake right so it does have to compete with the uh perception that people had of the original and what the original is about the original was pretty much a metaphor for the red scare like the the analogy they were making is that these pods was essentially a reference to communism and how it's like under the surface and your grandpa could be a commie and your wife could be a commie and who can you really trust? Where in this particular version, I feel it's less about that. And I think it's even less about Watergate like Ebert thinks it's about. I think it's about conformity. I think it's about the idea that this is a essentially a hippie writing a movie a hippie directing a movie about getting away from this conservative conformity because you're going to just have this society of automatons. I feel that that's the reference that they're trying to make, but I think it's lost in translation because of how closely the story fits in with the original, especially when you've got people like Siskel and Ebert reviewing it. Yeah, of course they're going to compare everything to Watergate because we had a dozen films in the 70s that were metaphors for Watergate. So I get that. They're living in that now, in that time. But us now, we can have that advantage of hindsight and reflection and see that there's probably more to it than that because we're not living in that that soup of everything as a conspiracy. Yeah, when we look at the remake, because the the story was written pretty close to when the movie came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty back-to-back. And you can make the themes of this movie work in every single decade. I mean, it's a very simplistic way to tie in the themes. You have a point there. And when we look at even to now, if they which they did remake it in 2007 and they and we see it getting looser and looser um, where you can tie things in. And what this one does is, yeah, it it doesn't really you can tie it in. But at the same time, it's a really loose tie in because this one is so in your face when it comes to the symbolic messaging. You can pinpoint this theme to anything. Uh, socialist, social independence, Watergate, um, uh, authoritarian society, whatever it may be. Um, to me, I keep it as dumbed down basic of something as simple as just individuality of in society. And I'm tying that in. If I watched it now, that's what I would tie it in with social media being the way it is. And again, of course, not in the 70s, but for people watching this movie now, there is a lot in our society today that you can relate that to um, while watching it. That's even more important than what it was in the 70s of just saying that's that's because of Watergate. Yeah, um, you made a huge breakthrough right there in that statement, because you could literally make this exact same movie today and not have aliens. You could make it with. Social media with your smartphone, you can have it people being influenced and changed by things they're seeing on a screen, which, you know, maybe someone's already made that movie and I just haven't seen it. But 
the basic structure of the story does not have to be aliens these days. There's a lot of other things that are influencing us as a society other than that. So I guess the thing that I have to say now as we get into our segment about what Siskel and Ebert think about this movie is, I mean, we've pretty much watched at least, I'd say, the majority of clips of at the movies and of sneak previews of their reviews of films. And of this particular one, I was really surprised of how much of the movie they showed and how little they actually reviewed and debated about it. And that blows my mind because these are two guys that love to hear themselves talk, right? And they spoke so little about it. And the things that they said were pretty much complimentary of each other's opinions. That really, really is interesting for those two. So let's just kind of go ahead and start off with what Siskel says. That scene isn't really particularly original. And for me, the best moments in Invasion of the Body Snatchers are at the beginning when the people change into the pods. At the end, just like in that scene there, it becomes just a routine chase story. Still, all in all, it's one of the few good movies in what unfortunately has turned out to be a very dismal holiday season. Why is he so quiet on this? Why is he so reserved on what he really feels? Well, and if you look at the combination, too, because what really stood out with me on this is Ebert saying, asking the question is, why is this a remake? And then complimenting it. Right. Why does it matter if you like it? it? But there is a lot. So I didn't look at the 1978s either. So but it almost feels like they didn't deep dive into this or they're really comparing it to the original. They don't want to outshadow the original, but I really don't know why they didn't deep dive into this one. Um, Cause this review lasted for four and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. It was a decent chunk of time given of how many movies they reviewed, but you get very little information of, you know, it was entertaining. Right. And then followed up with Ebert saying people should know, Hey guys, it's entertaining. So that's not enough for me to go see a movie because the definition of entertaining is different for everybody. When we see a review, I want to see why it's entertaining. I don't want to, com- well, it's cl- it's not like Close Encounters of the Third Kind because these are bad aliens, but it's entertaining. So to me, you're right. There's not a lot of detail to it, and it didn't entice me to really seek out the movie if I was watching the show in the 70s. I'm not the biggest fan of Siskel's critiques, you know, and that's why I chose him as my guy for this podcast because it's going to make me go back and kind of review his words and review his opinions and his agendas for certain films. And I tell you, man, the grievances that I expressed to you earlier on in this conversation, I feel are the same things that he would have pointed out if this was like another film, you know, like the stunt casting of Kevin McCarthy. Don Siegel as the taxi driver, you know, having those throwbacks, having Robert Duvall show up at the very beginning as a priest on a swing for apparently no reason. These are distractions for me. I don't think these are fun. I I don't. And I am a guy that likes fun. But in this film, I didn't want that. And I feel that of all the reviews I've heard him do, it really feels like something that he would have mentioned or called out like it's baiting him it's right there we've seen him do it before it's like oh so you're gonna put that guy in that character oh you're gonna have arnold schwarzenegger have a cameo in this role you know just to like please the crowd you're distracting us from the story i feel that that's something that he would have gone after and he didn't even mention it didn't even touch it 
even though I said I didn't like the second half, I didn't get that feeling that it was a elongated chasing because they had substance to back it up. You get close up of cops, you get the society in the state that they're at. So it's not just them running away from people. They're actually looking to survive to see what they can do next. And that's the thing they point out. I don't know. Maybe they were expecting more aliens. Maybe they were expecting more creatures. Because I tell you, that's one of the most impressive things about this movie is that this is an alien invasion movie where you don't have to see the creature to be afraid. What you see is the seedling and the metamorphosis and the metamorphosis of these people being birthed out of these pods and waiting for you to fall asleep so they can take over. That's the terror. That's the that's the scary of it. And they don't even compliment that either. That's a very cool suspense building yet also economical technique. And, and that's not even covered in, in, in complimentary form either. Yeah, and you look at movies they've complimented like Jaws, for example, in, in the 70s. So they their biggest selling point to Jaws was you don't see the shark. And this was a huge technique in a lot of movies in the 70s. And you're 100% right that they have reviewed movies like this. And this should have been in their repertoire mm -hmm. that they know to bring this up in the film. You know, it's a chase movie. Is it a sci-fi movie? Philip Coffin's a talented young director. But they take that last minute to 90 seconds instead of to talking about the movie to just talk about how depleted the ideas of Hollywood are now that everything is a remake and everything is a sequel. There, the movies haven't been too good. This is a good one. But I have a question about it. Mm -hmm. It's well acted. It's well photographed. Mm -hmm. Phil Kaufman is a really good rising young director. Why did they remake Invasion of the Body Snatchers? We're both movie buffs. I think I've seen the original 56 version uh, two or three times, mm -hmm. sitting there appreciating the film, I still didn't know why it was necessary. Well, what's even more amazing, it's sort of typical of this year. We have so many sequels, part two of this, part two of that, remaking an old movie. Isn't it amazing to you as we see these films that there's, here's this whole colony of filmmakers and they're bereft of ideas? I don't understand why it happens. It's One thing we should make clear, though, is the film is worth going to see, especially if you haven't seen the other one. Yeah, in the moment where you see all these bodies, these pods lying around, which is an absurd moment, I suppose, it does get real and you do worry about it. So it's an effective film. We have this conversation pretty much every day, even offline. Your podcast, your reviews about all the movies that are coming out, it's like three out of five films, you have this same complaint about why aren't people doing original things? Why is everything a re reboot, a remake, uh, a sequel, a prequel, a legacy sequel? Well, these guys are talking about it in 1978 when hardly anyone was really doing it. So I, I don't know why they spent so much time dedicated to that. And, and it bugs me because you go back and look at the films in 1978, it's only a few that are sequels, remakes, reboots, you know, whatever. Yet that's what they decide to put most of their energy into that conversation. Well, when you're not used to a lot of sequels back then, you take two movies and that's like crazy back then. I, I would, or remakes. Or remakes. I would have loved to see that show now and that would have probably been a big discussion. Um, but yeah, even going, and you're right, half of it was just footage from it. And going at the last piece of it, it just felt like filler just to kind of close it up. I mean, that the worst piece of this inter, this uh, review for me was the backup saying it was entertaining. People should know it's entertaining. Right. 
to me, that is such a cop-out statement to close out an interview, in my in my personal opinion, because it it's like selling something to somebody and saying, and there's and they're telling you no, and you're saying, well, are you sure? It, it's, right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a hundred percent. So this one I think deserved a better review, or at least a release of some written material or some comparisons, because this is a movie that is perfect, especially more important in the last 20 years to compare it to, because there's so many skills and techniques that people pull from this movie. If it wasn't any good, if the previous version wasn't any good, they wouldn't have remade it two more times after this movie. So there is a lot of history to this movie that should have been talked about. Remade it or just plain ripped it off, you know, (laughs) like think about, Think about the faculty, you know? The faculty is essentially a John Hughes kind of style of this film. You've got Kevin Williamson writing that script, which, let's let's face it, the dude was brilliant at making old things new again in the 90s, you know? Taking the old slasher movies, putting the 90s polish and cynicism on it, and making it understandable for audiences of the 90s. You know, that's what his greatest skill was. And that's why I think The Faculty is kind of a brilliant movie. It's it's pure popcorn trash, but it's brilliant in the fact that it took the old tricks that they were doing in this film and in its original film and being able to make it hip and cool for the teenage and, and 20-something audiences of the late 90s. But what films like that lose and where I feel like a film like this doesn't play as well today is that we are so spoiled on effects. We are so spoiled on jump scares and constant action that we forget what moody and suspenseful horror feels like. So that's why when modern audiences watch this movie, if they're not let's say in tune with that vibe of conspiracy and, and paranoia cinema of the seventies, they are going to find it dull. They are going to find it boring and that's, that's fine. That that's okay. I'm just, my point is, is that for such appreciators of cinema that these two critics were, they let a lot of this movie's greatest moments yeah, just sit and on the coming table from and an not adaption because you know I'm an adaption guy. Excited for it. So when we take an adaption from a book, the first and foremost, I should be able to watch a movie, close my eyes, and still understand the story. And that's where the fine line is: where is this movie going to be good? Should I embrace the music? Should I embrace the story? And will I understand it when the credits roll? To this movie, the answer is 110% yes, and everything else is going to complement it. The performances, if you close your eyes in this movie, the performances are going to sound good. They're going to match the tone. The music the music's going to complement the characters and the atmosphere. If you close your eyes during this this movie, it's like an old radio show where you still get those vibes that you're watching a 1950s movie. So there is a lot of elements in the storytelling. And when it comes to the adaption piece of it, this is a brilliant adaption because you can literally just listen to it and everything else is supporting. The 1950s Don Siegel version. We've got this one. Uh, Bell Ferreira did Body Snatchers in 1993, and then we did The Invasion in 2007, which I did see in the theater. I remember very little of it other than it was kind of boring, and it was Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman. 
Of those four, which one do you think, I'm not going to say is the best, which one do you find the most entertaining? The entertaining has to be 93's uh, Body Snatchers. I think with all the elements and Ferreira's direction on it, I think he did a brilliant job on taking that nitty gritty atmosphere, but still being a little cheesy, but appropriate. Um, I think the tone of it was uh, well done. So, um, but when it, before we get into it, I'm going to stick with that before we go on with it. So that one to me would be the most entertaining. I agree. hundred percent. 1993 is the most entertaining. And we've, we've talked about how we have kind of like a love hate with Abel Ferreira films. We love China girl. I hate bad Lieutenant. I hate it. I can't, it's one of the films I just don't like, but I love Miss 45. It's just interesting. Like he is such a, uh, a hot and cold director for me. And uh, his version of Body Snatchers for sure is one of my favorite sci-fi films of the nineties. I think it's underrated. It's definitely underseen. And I-, I think that is one that I prefer to this one, but this one I think has the most staying power because it's the most palatable for most audiences. You know, where the 1950s one, hey, if you like old sci-fi movies, it's good. Like The Blob. It's a, it's a, it's a good, entertaining film in a sea of, I'd say, substandard sci-fi films of its era, right? It, it had enough to make it stand out and be remade several times. This one, I think, is a, it's a choice. This is a choice for people to watch. It's hard to excite them especially modern day audiences on the cast. It's hard to excite them on the appeal of the the filmmaker. And I think the aesthetic, it's very 70s. It's very gritty. It's kind of grimy and slimy looking. It just doesn't pop colorfully, which that's 70s cinema in my opinion. But that's where I think modern audiences are going to have a problem with it. Well, the problem with modern day audiences now is that they don't, a lot of audiences don't appreciate the story. They appreciate the entertainment. And that's what nowadays with social media, video games, whatever it may be, has shortened the attention span where we kind of take for granted all the crap Hollywood has pushed to the market where we expect this, this is the new expectation. Um, we have to, I can't close my eyes in a movie now and hear a story. I hear a big explosion. I hear, um, just random loud music playing. So the storytelling aspect of film today is you have to dig deep to find it. Um, But when it comes to this film and just telling the old fashioned story, some will appreciate the storytelling aspect with a little bit of entertainment value at the end, the so-called chase. Um, Right. And some, I think decent special effects for the seventies at the time. Um, I think the special effects are a good, catch where they're not so cheesy but they're more interesting though you take the flowers you take the pods i think those were really well done um, to create curiosity not necessarily scare um so i think in mere curiosity i think if you appreciate the story along with a side of scary i think this complements each other nice without blowing blowing your hat off of being terrified and one of the most, I'm going to say, memorable endings of the 70s. You know, like, I love the ending. I love what it does. I love how the ending sets up, the build up to it, without giving the ending away. But it's one of those things where it's like, I know. I know that if I sat and watched this with my partner, 
that she would not be impressed as as I am of it. I think she's been too spoiled on on modern day cinema and jump scares and Shyamalan endings, right? And this kind of does have like a proto Shyamalan ending if you if you really think about it. But I mean, like she doesn't like the ending of Psycho. She doesn't like the ending of Rosemary's Baby. Like she feels like they were letdowns. But for people like you and me, are like, oh, those are some of the best endings in cinema. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And it just kind of goes to speak of like, okay, well, everyone has their own taste. Everyone has their own idea of what a good ending should be. And all that really matters is that, like, I think that they stuck the landing and you read about the ending enough in enough books about cinema and enough reviews and critiques of the time where I feel it's validated. But it pisses me off that we have no record of what <laughs> Siskel and Ebert thought about it. Well, that ending is, for the 70s, that was the the shocker of the decade. Because right. even when I first saw it, I didn't see it coming. I was just like, oh, man, this w-. it goes off of a fear and tackles it with another fear. Because you're just thinking this guy has to live among the danger of being this guy that has to just blend in. And then it goes into that amazing musical screech along with his screech it to me it, it you're right it's one of the most memorable scenes when it comes to movies from the 70s that just kind of sticks in your head because it literally just screams in your head as an exclamation mark before the credits roll 100 percent. and i mean if family guy and simpsons pay homage to it then it actually does have some cultural relevance right so there you go well it's hard to give their critiques and actual rating because of how minuscule they actually are. But I'm going to go ahead and say that, uh, in my opinion, Siskel's deserves a C because he's not tearing the film apart as he does so commonly. And most of the time when he tears the film apart, I don't agree with a lot of those critiques. I feel a lot of them are uh, trigger words for readers to be like, oh, he really hated this. Like, it's to incite an emotional reaction, so you just keep reading. That's how I felt a lot of Siskel's critiques are. But he doesn't really do that here. He doesn't really compliment it that much either, other than saying that it's entertaining, you know, and that it's a better film than the other ones this holiday season. But at least he didn't throw that gobbledygook that he usually throws out where I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about, Gene? (laughs) What about you? What about Rogers? What do you think? I'm going to give him a little bit of credit because he does kind of talk about, I shouldn't say he talks about it. He just has, it has good uh, photography. So, but that's a, that's a credit. That's something that he gives the filmmakers credit for. But what I was really disappointed with Ebert is known to love these sci-fi films mixed with horror, like mimics, yes. flies, the arrival, all, all these. And he can go on and on as he does in his books about the mixture of these. And, it's disappointing to me that he didn't take charge on this one because this one suits his style more than jeans, in my opinion. But I'm disappointed because he gave that last statement of just pure fluff without substance. So I have to give him like a D. I think that if Siskel had had a contradictory opinion to it, if he didn't like this film, you probably would have heard more vocalization from Ebert and more debate. But that's that's one of the things. And we're, we're going to have more films coming up on our list that we're going to have to be creative on the conversation where the times that they both agree, 
at least mostly on some of those films, are some of the least interesting conversations they have. Because their whole thing was like debating on why their opinion is heavier than the others. And that's going to be a, a challenge for some films. But there are some films where they are like highly complimentary and they agree on that most people, most people disagree with. And we're definitely going to be covering some of those in future episodes. So, yeah, no, it's a great conversation. And I would say that this is a film that definitely needs to be visited or revisited because I hadn't seen it in a little bit, you know, I'd say at least 10, 15 years. And then I got the 4K, watched it right away, rewatched it for this and caught a lot of different things. And I, I just have to say that the one thing that used to scare me as a kid that now I kind of felt laughable is the Banjo Man face on the dog. That that used to scare the hell out of me as a kid. And this time it just didn't land as well. But out of nostalgic indifference, I give it a pass. <laughs> okay, so the scene that scared me was Duvall on the swing. I didn't like the way he was looking at me. Uh, but <laughs> but I would say if those that see this movie now, not to even consider it, even though that's the genre of a scary horror movie, I'd say look at it and relate it to the way we live today and pick your own theme because this movie speaks to a lot of different venues. And you, if you go into it not expecting just to see a jump out and say boo or just this monster movie, think of it as a very themed, thought-provoking conversation that you can have afterwards. Right. Because there is a lot that you can tie into this movie that was just fantastic, even though it, does, it doesn't have that flair of entertainment value of a alien invasion movie. But there's a lot to it that you can go on just studying this movie and talking about it and picking things that you can relate to. I agree 100%. Great conversation. Everyone, go watch this film. And if you want to see our true opinion, jump on my letterbox, jump on Justin's Movie Wire letterbox. You can see our reviews there and how many stars we gave it. Because we don't talk about that on the pod. We are just talking about Cisco and Ebert's review on that. But man, great conversation. Thank you so much. Everyone, please remember to go and subscribe not only to Back to the Balcony, but to the Movie Wire and to the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast. You can find the links to all our shows on both our websites. I'm thecultworthy.com. And I'm the Movie Wire. Everyone, thank you so much. And we will see you next week.